Section 29 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Read by Nick Marsh in Tonino, Washington. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1, by James Boswell. Section 29. On Wednesday, July 20, Dr. Johnson, Mr. Dempster, and my uncle, Dr. Boswell, who happened to be now in London, supped with me at these chambers. Johnson Pity is not natural to man. Children are always cruel. Savages are always cruel. Pity is acquired and improved by the cultivation of reason. We may have uneasy sensations from seeing a creature in distress without pity for we have not pity unless we wish to relieve him. When I am on my way to dine with a friend, and finding it late, have bid the coachman make haste. If I happen to attend when he whips his horses, I may feel unpleasantly that the animals are put to pain, but I do not wish him to desist. No, sir, I wish him to drive on. Mr. Alexander Donaldson bookseller of Edinburgh, had for some time opened a shop in London, and sold his cheap editions of the most popular English books, in defiance of the supposed common-law right of literary property. Johnson, though he concurred in the opinion which was afterwards sanctioned by the judgment of the House of Lords, that there was no such right, was at this time very angry that the booksellers of London, for whom he uniformly professed much regard, should suffer from an invasion of what they had ever considered to be secure. And he was loud and violent against Mr. Donaldson. He is a fellow who takes advantage of the law to injure his brethren, for notwithstanding that the statute secures only fourteen years of exclusive right, it has always been understood by the trade that he who buys the copyright of a book from the author obtains perpetual property and upon that belief numberless bargains are made to transfer that property after the expiration of the statutory term. Now Donaldson, I say, takes advantage here of people who have really an equitable title from usage, and if we consider how few of the books of which they buy the property succeed so well as to bring profit, we should be of the opinion that the term of fourteen years is too short, it should be sixty years. Dempster. Donaldson, sir, is anxious for the encouragement of literature. He reduces the price of books so that the poor students may buy them. Johnson, laughing. Well, sir, allowing that to be his motive, he is no better than Robin Hood, who robbed the rich in order to give to the poor. It is remarkable that when the great question concerning literary property came to be ultimately tried before the Supreme Tribunal of the country, in consequence of the very spirited exertions of Mr. Donaldson, Dr. Johnson was zealous against a perpetuity, but he thought that the term of the exclusive right of authors should be considerably enlarged. He was then for granting a hundred years. The conversation now turned upon Mr. David Hume's style. Johnson why, sir, his style is not English. The structure of his sentence is French. 
Now the French structure and the English structure may, in the nature of things, be equally good, but if you allow that the English language is established, he is wrong. My name might originally have been Nicholson, as well as Johnson, but were you to call me Nicholson now, you would call me very absurdly. Rousseau's treaty on the inequality of mankind was at this time a fashionable topic. It gave rise to the observation of Mr. Dempster that the advantages of fortune and rank were nothing to a wise man who ought to value only merit. Johnson If man were a savage living in the woods by himself, this might be true, but in civilized society we all depend upon each other, and our happiness is very much owing to the good opinion of mankind. Now, sir, in civilized society, external advantages make us more respected. A man with a good coat upon his back meets with a better reception than he who has a bad one. Sir, you may analyze this and say, what is there in it? But that will avail you nothing, for it is a part of a general system. Pound St. Paul's Church into atoms, and consider any single atom. It is to be, sure, good for nothing. But put all these atoms together, and you have St. Paul's Church. So it is with human felicity, which is made up of many ingredients, each of which may be shown to be very insignificant in civilized society. Personal merit will not serve you so much as money will, sir. You may make the experiment. Go into the street and give one man a lecture on morality, and another a shilling and see which will respect you most. If you wish only to support nature, Sir William Petty fixes your allowance at three pounds a year, but as times are much altered, let us call it six pounds. This sum will fill your belly, shelter you from the weather, and even get you a strong-lasting coat, supposing it be made of good bull's hide. Now, sir, all beyond this is artificial and is desired in order to obtain a greater degree of respect from our fellow creatures. And, sir, if six hundred pounds a year procure a man more consequence, and, of course, more happiness, then six pounds a year, the same proportion will hold to as six thousand, and so on, as far as opulence can be carried. Perhaps he who has a large fortune may not be so happy as he who has a small one but that must proceed from other causes than from having the large fortune. For Ceteris Peribus, he who is rich in a civilized society must be happier than he who is poor, as riches, if properly used, and it is a man's own fault if they are not, must be productive of the highest advantages. Money, to be sure of itself, is of no use, for its only use is to part with it. Rousseau and all those who deal in paradoxes are led away by a childish desire of novelty. When I was a boy I used always to choose the wrong side of a debate, because most ingenious things, that is to say, most new things, could be set upon it. So there is nothing for which you may not muster up more plausible arguments than those which are urged against wealth and other external advantages. Why now, there is stealing. Why should it be thought a crime? 
when we consider by what unjust methods property has often been acquired, and that what was unjustly got, it must be unjust to keep. Where is the harm in one man's taking the property of another from him? Besides, sir, when we consider the bad use that many people make of their property, and how much better use the thief may make of it, it may be defended as a very allowable practice. Yet, sir, the experience of mankind has discovered stealing to be so very bad a thing that they make no scruple to hang a man for it. When I was running about this town, a very poor fellow, I was a great arguer for the advantages of poverty, but I was, at the same time, very sorry to be poor. Sir, all the arguments which are brought to represent poverty as no evil show it to be evidently a great evil. You never find people laboring to convince you that they may live very happily upon a plentiful fortune. So you hear people talking how miserable a king must be, and yet they all wish to be in his place. It was suggested that kings must be unhappy, because they are deprived of the greatness of all satisfactions, easy and unreserved society. Johnson That is an ill-founded notion. Being a king does not exclude a man from such society. Great kings have always been social. The kings of Prussia, the only great king at present, is very social. Charles the Second, and the last king of England, who was a man of parts, was social, and our Henrys and Edwards were all social. Mr. Dempster, having endeavored to maintain that intrinsic merit, ought to make the only distinction amongst mankind. Johnson. Why, sir, mankind have found that this cannot be. How shall we determine the proportion of intrinsic merit? Were that to be the only distinction amongst mankind, we should soon quarrel about the degree of it. Were all distinctions abolished, the strongest would not long acquiescence, but would endeavor to obtain a superiority by their bodily strength. But, sir, as subordination is very necessary for society, and contentions for superiority very dangerous, mankind, that is to say, all civilized nations have settled it upon a plain invariable principle. A man is born to hereditary rank, or his being appointed to certain offices gives him a certain rank. Subordination tends greatly to human happiness, were we all upon an equality, we should have no other enjoyment than mere animal pleasure. I said I considered distinction of rank to be of so much importance in civilized society, that if I were asked on the same day to dine with the first duke in England, and with the first man in Britain, for genius, I should hesitate which to prefer. Johnson. To be sure, sir, if you were to dine only once, and it were never to be known where you dined, you would choose rather to dine with the first man of genius, but to gain most respect, you should dine with the first duke in England, for nine people in ten that you meet with would have a higher opinion of you for having dined with a duke, and the great genius himself would receive you better because you have been with the great duke. 
he took care to guard himself against any possible suspicion that his settled principles of reverence for rank and respect for wealth were at all owing to mean or interested motives, for he asserted his own independence as a literary man. "'No man,' said he, "'whoever lived by literature has lived more independently than I have done.' He said he had taken longer time than he needed to have done in composing his dictionary. He received our compliments upon that great work with complacency, and told us that the Academy della Crusca could scarcely believe that it was done by one man. Next morning I found him alone, and have preserved the following fragments of his conversation. Of a gentleman who was mentioned, he said, I have not met with any man for a long time who has given me such gentle displeasure. He is totally unfixed in his principles, and wants to puzzle other people. I said his principles had been poisoned by a noted infidel writer, but that he was nevertheless a benevolent good man. Johnson We can have no dependence upon that instinctive, that constitutional goodness which is not founded upon principle. I grant you that such a man may be a very amiable member of society. I can conceive him placed in such a situation that he is not much tempted to deviate from what is right, and as every man prefers virtue, when there is not some strong incitement to transgress its precepts, I can conceive him doing nothing wrong. But if such a man stood in need of money, I should not like to trust him, and I should certainly not trust him with young ladies, for there, there is always temptation." Hume and other skeptical innovators are vain men, and will gratify themselves at any expense. Truth will not afford such food to their vanity, so they have betaken themselves to error. Truth, sir, is a cow which will yield such people no more milk, and so they are gone to milk the bull. If I could have allowed myself to gratify my vanity, at the expense of truth, what fame might I have acquired? Everything which Hume has advanced against Christianity had passed through my mind long before he wrote. Always remember this, that after a system is well settled upon positive evidence, a few partial objections ought not to shake it. The human mind is so limited that it cannot take in all the parts of a subject, so that there may be objections raised against anything. There are objections against a plenum, and objections against a vacuum, yet one of them must certainly be true. I mentioned Hume's arguments against the belief of miracles, that it is more probable that the witnesses to the truth of them are mistaken, or speak falsely, than that the miracles should be true. Johnson Why, sir, the great difficulty of proving miracles should make us very cautious in believing them. But let us consider, although God has made nature to operate by certain fixed laws, yet it is not unreasonable to think that he may suspend those laws in order to establish a system highly advantageous to mankind. 
now the christian religion is a most beneficial system as it gives us light and certainty where we were before in darkness and doubt the miracles which prove it are attested by men who had no interest in deceiving us but who on the contrary were told that they should suffer persecution and did actually lay down their lives in confirmation of the truth of the facts which they asserted indeed for some centuries the heathens did not pretend to deny the miracles but said they were performed by the aid of evil spirits this is a circumstance of great weight then sir when we take the proofs derived from the prophecies which have been so exactly fulfilled we have most satisfactory evidence supposing a miracle possible as to which in my opinion there can be no doubt we have a strong evidence for the miracles in support of christianity as the nature of the thing admits at night mr johnson and i supped in a private room at the turk's head coffee-house in the strand i encourage this house said he for the mistress of it is a good civil woman and has not much business sir i love the acquaintance of young people because in the first place i don't like to think myself growing old in the next place young acquaintances must last longest if they do last and then sir young men have more virtue than old men they have more generous sentiments in every respect i love the young dogs of this age they have more wit and humor and knowledge of life than we had but then the dogs are not so good scholars sir in my early years i read very hard it is a sad reflection but a true one that i knew almost as much at eighteen as i do now my judgment to be sure was not so good but i had all the facts i remember very well when i was at oxford an old gentleman said to me young man ply your books diligently now and acquire a stock of knowledge for when years come upon you you will find that poring upon books will be but an irksome task this account of his reading given by himself in plain words sufficiently confirms what i have already advanced upon the disputed questions as to his application and reconciles any seeming inconsistency in his way of talking upon it at different times and shows that idleness and reading hard were with him relative terms the import of which as used by him must be gathered from a comparison with what scholars of different degrees of ardor and assiduity have been known to do and let it be remembered that he was now talking spontaneously and expressing his genuine sentiments whereas at other times he might be induced from his spirit of contradiction or more properly from his love of argumentative contest to speak lightly of his own application to study it is pleasing to consider that the old gentleman's gloomy prophecy as to the irksomeness of books to men of an advanced age which is too often fulfilled was so far from being verified in johnson that his ardor for literature never failed and his last writings had more ease and vivacity than any of his earlier productions he mentioned to me now for the first time that he had been distressed by melancholy and for that reason 
he had been obliged to fly from study and meditation to the dissipating variety of life. Against melancholy he recommended constant occupation of mind, a great deal of exercise, moderation in eating and drinking, and especially to shun drinking at night. He said melancholy people were apt to fly to intemperance for relief, but that it sunk them much deeper in misery. He observed that laboring men who work hard and live sparingly are seldom or never troubled with low spirits. He again insisted on the duty of maintaining subordination of rank. Sir, I would no more deprive a nobleman of his respect than of his money. I consider myself as acting a part in the great system of society, and I do to others as I would have them do to me. I would behave to a nobleman as I should expect he would behave to me, were I a nobleman, and he, Sam Johnson. Sir, there is one Mrs. Macaulay in this town, a great Republican. One day when I was at her house, I put on a very grave countenance and said to her, Madam, I am now become a convert to your way of thinking. I am convinced that all mankind are upon an equal footing, and to give you an unquestionable proof, madam, that I am earnest, here is a very sensible, civil, well-behaved fellow-citizen, your footman. I desire that he may be allowed to sit down and dine with us. I thus, sir, showed her the absurdity of leveling doctrine. She has never liked me since. Sir, your levelers wish to level down, as far as themselves, but they cannot bear leveling up to themselves. They would all have some people under them. Why not then have some people above them? I mentioned a certain author who disgusted me by his forwardness, and by showing no difference to noblemen into those whose company he was admitted. Johnson Suppose a shoemaker should claim an equality with him, as he does with a lord. How he would stare! Why, sir, do you stare, says the shoemaker? I do great service to society. Tis true I am paid for doing it, but so are you, sir, and I am sorry to say it, paid better than I am for doing something not so necessary. For mankind could do better without your books than without my shoes. Thus, sir, there would be a perpetual struggle for precedence were there no fixed invariable rules for the distinction of rank, which creates no jealousy as it allowed to be accidental. He said Dr. Joseph Wharton was a very agreeable man, and his essay on the genius in writing of Pope, a very pleasing book. I wondered that he delayed so long to give us the continuation of it. Johnson Why, sir, I suppose he finds himself a little disappointed in not having been able to persuade the world to be of his opinion as to Pope. We have now been favored with the concluding volume to which, to use a parliamentary expression, he has explained, so as not to appear quite so adverse to the opinion of the world concerning Pope, as was at first thought. And we all must agree that his work is a most valuable accession to English literature. A writer of deserved eminence being mentioned, Johnson said, Why, sir, he is a man of good parts, but being originally poor, 
he has got a love of mean company and low jocularity a very bad thing sir to laugh is good as to talk is good but you ought no more to think it enough if you laugh than you are to think it enough if you talk you may laugh as many ways as you talk and surely every way of talking that is practised cannot be esteemed i spoke of sir james macdonald as a young man of most distinguished merit who united the highest reputation at eton and oxford with the patriarchal spirit of a great highland chieftain i mentioned that sir james had said to me that he had never seen mr johnson but he had a great respect for him though at the same time it was mixed with some degree of terror johnson sir if he were to be acquainted with me it might lessen both the mention of this gentleman led us to talk of the western islands of scotland to visit which he expressed a wish that then appeared to me a very romantic fancy which a little thought would be afterwards realized he told me that his father had put martin's account of those islands into his hands when he was very young and that he was highly pleased with it that he was particularly struck with the saint kilda man's notion that the high church of glasgow had been hollowed out of a rock a circumstance to which old mr johnson had directed his attention he said he would go to the hebrides with me when i returned from my travels unless some very good companion should offer when i was absent which he did not think probable adding there are few people to whom i take so much as you and when i talked of my leaving england he said with a very affectionate air my dear boswell i should be very unhappy at parting did i think we were not to meet again i cannot too often remind my readers that although such instances of his kindness are doubtless very flattering to me yet i hope my recording them will be ascribed to a better motive than to vanity for they afford unquestionable evidence of his tenderness and complacency with some while they were forced to acknowledge his great powers have been so strenuous to deny he maintained that a boy at school was the happiest of human beings i supported a different opinion from which i have never yet varied that a man is happier and i enlarged upon the anxiety and sufferings which are endured at school johnson ah sir a boy being flogged is not so severe as a man's having the hiss of the world against him men have a solicitude about fame and the greater share they have of it the more afraid they are of losing it i silently ask myself is it possible that the great samuel johnson really entertains any such apprehension and is not confident that his exalted fame is established upon a foundation never to be shaken he this evening drank a bumper to sir david dalrymple as a man of worth a scholar and a wit i have said he never heard of him except from you but let him know my opinion of him, for as he does not show himself much in the world, he should have the praise of the few who hear of him. End of section 29